You're listening to The Retail Perch with Shaka Raman and Gary Hawkins. We're going to discuss industry challenges and opportunities in grocery retail, AI, current and upcoming trends, and so much more. Hey, folks, welcome back to another episode of The Retail Perch. We took a week off there in between because uh, Gary had to go skiing again in the mountains. So, <laughs> <laughs> Gary's been having a good time uh, up in the mountains in Denver. I know Gary got some good powder, I guess. Uh, yes, the snow was uh, was great. The uh, season started out pretty light uh, back in December, but there's snow out in the mountains now and skiing is great. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I know... Uh, Gary's been working through with his knee and his hip and it's recovering remarkably from what I hear. So uh, listen, I wanted to thank everybody for supporting this podcast and listening to us. And I, I do get comments back from people who've been listening to past episodes and enjoying it. So we appreciate those comments and your support. And, you know, as we endeavor here to bring you interesting and relevant content and cutting edge people, uh, today we happen to have somebody who is on the bleeding edge of the cutting edge, uh, if anything. The, so Jason here comes from a tremendous background. And I'm just going to give you his quick intro, and he's got quite an intro, tell, believe it or not. So he's a fourth-generation retailer, and he's constantly on Twitter um, expressing his point of view as the retail geek. And you can find his, you know, a ton of uh, his episodes that he runs with Jason and Scott show. That's about e-commerce. It's one of the top podcasts on retail that you can find on your favorite podcast platform. And I've listened to a few episodes and they're fantastic. Okay. Besides that, Jason has a long and rich and illustrious history uh, working with multiple companies. Uh, his latest stint, he's a publicist as a chief commerce strategy officer, helping a bunch of companies uh, implement their e-commerce strategies. And we're here to have a fun conversation with Jason, find out and learn a little bit more about him and his views on uh, where this industry is going. So welcome, Jason, to the Retail Perch. Oh, my gosh. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, that was a very kind introduction. And, you know, listen, Jason, just take on, take on a few minutes. We'd love to get to know you a little better. In fact, you know, some history of where you come from. And, you know, I'm really curious about this fourth generation retailer thing. I mean, you must have retail running in your blood like, you know, a few other people do. Yeah, I like to think I do. The yeah, my my uh, family immigrated from Russia to the United States via South America five generations ago, and so my 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 great grandfather uh, ended up in the Pacific Northwest and made a living off of a fruit cart. So originally, like literally selling selling produce off a cart on the street, and he did well enough to expand the the fruit cart into a grocery store. So my family was in the independent grocery business for a, for a brief while. So homage to Gary the. My my grandfather had a strong interest in jewelry, and they actually added a pawn shop to the side of the grocery store that evolved into a jewelry store. And he ended up opening a chain of jewelry stores under my family name in the Pacific Northwest that were uh, successful for a while. That They've all been rolled up into the big national chains now. And uh, uh, a number of my uncles back in the we'll call it early to mid 80s, got into a very seedy, unsuccessful retail category at the time called home video stores. And those those stores were ultimately acquired by a, an entrepreneur um, on the East Coast in Florida named Wayne Heisinger. And my uncles uh, uh, sold the stores to him and they included me in the transaction. So I was like the the player to be named later went with the video stores to whom I affectionately refer to as Uncle Wayne. He passed away a few years ago, but uh, Wayne Heisinger founded Blockbuster. So these these stores were amongst the first 10 there. And we opened a store every 12 hours. So when I left, we had about 4,000 stores. 
And uh, while I was there, this whole thing called the internet happened. So we we had to figure out how to get a website up, and eventually we figured out how to sell some movies online a couple of years before Amazon was born. And so then when we sold Blockbuster in the early 90s, my experience in uh, getting e-commerce up and running was was interesting to some other retailers. So all the folks in Minneapolis, uh, Target and, and Best Buy hired me to uh, help help sort of replicate that process there. So that was my start. Uh, I've gone to work with a bunch of really smart, great people. And today I work for a big, evil marketing and advertising agency and help a lot of the biggest retailers in the world. It's quite a background. Yeah, yeah I'm is. exhausted. <laughs> Can we take a nap now? <laughs> huh. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. So that's going from fruit cards to video sales online to back into retail now e-commerce. Wow. That's, that's amazing. And, I, and I, I was looking up when I was reading a bio, I noticed you guys have been doing podcasting before podcasting was in fashion back in 2015, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. So there, there used to be a trade organization in the United States called Shop.org. There was like a, yep. you know, a, a peer group for, for digital retailers, and the they had an elected board. So uh, I, I got to serve as a board member, and one of the co-board members was this gentleman, Scott Wingo, who's a very successful entrepreneur. He founded uh, Channel Advisor, which is the main company that that folks use to sell through marketplaces like Amazon and Alibaba and all that. Uh, so Scott and I. We're both kind of geeks and, and, you know, we'd always talk shop and after board meetings, we'd go to a bar and talk about our favorite topic, which was the same thing we were talking about in the board meeting, you know, trends and news and gossip in retail. And, and one day Scott's like, you know, we should really record this. Like we should make a podcast. And he likes to joke that the next day I showed up with like $8,000 worth of audio equipment, which is not true, but uh, a, a milder version of that is true. And we started recording. We thought, you know, maybe eight of our friends and family would listen and, and it kind of became an accidental success. Amazing. So, I mean, I'm, I just listened to a few episodes and I think I'm going to be listening to a whole lot more. I just love your style. I love the way you present stuff. So that's, that's fantastic. Anyway, so, so here we are, Gary, on, on the retail perch. And, uh, you know, I'm one of the things that, again, stood out for me is this deck that you guys shared on LinkedIn about e-commerce growth. And, you know, we've spent, you know, interestingly, the retail perch was born during the whole pandemic, right? So when it hit, the, it seemed like every episode we were talking about nothing but what's going to happen uh, with consumer behavior in, the, now we're two years in. And so the question I have for you, Jason, is do you, you know, obviously when things last for a few months and you think that, okay, it's temporary and it's going to go back. But when something lasts for two years, it creates some permanent shift in behavior, right? And do you see some of the, some of the spikes that happened here kind of leveling off, changing? And, and what do you, what's your, you know, what do you read in the tea leaves in terms of prediction of change customer behavior? Yeah. Well, if anyone has listened to the podcast, they will know I'm horrible at predictions. So we, we have a prediction show every year and Scott uh, cleans my clock. So take this with a grain of salt. I, I do think I, I've frankly been surprised by some of the things that I thought would be more permanent that have sort of already shown some evidence to be tertiary. It's a little convoluted because it feels like we were coming out of some of the pandemic behaviors. And then our friends at Omicron kind of renewed a lot of them. But like, you know, certainly I think the whole narrative that like the pandemic accelerated digital and McKinsey wrote this famous article that that the pandemic was accelerating e-commerce by 10 years. That's not true. And, you know, 
in general, it, it's it's looking more and more like if we look at the e-commerce penetration rate, you know, even even in 2022, it's not wildly different than we would have expected it to be three years ago. So, you know, for sure, we pulled some of that penetration in and it all happened in one month in March of 2020. But it doesn't look like we're permanently going to be selling way more stuff online in general in retail just because of the pandemic. But that being said, and most relevant to this podcast, there are certain segments of retail that experience the pandemic wildly different than others. And so while, you know, the the overall retail industry maybe didn't get that accelerated, e-commerce didn't get that accelerated, it does feel, and there there appears to be a fair body of evidence that grocery e-commerce absolutely did get accelerated by at least two or three years. And that that does appear pretty sticky. Uh, my grocery clients saw a lot of increased foot traffic, you know, in, in Q3 of 2021, which was encouraging. Uh, and then, you know, saw that start to abate in, in December as people were starting to get sick with Omicron. So, you know, I don't think people are giving up on brick and mortar stores. I, I'm very bullish on brick and mortar stores, but I think digital shopping and digital amenities for shopping have become a permanent part of the customer experience. And I don't think those customers are going to stop using them, you know, even uh, if and when this pandemic's ever over. Yeah. Well, to, to your point, you know, yeah, grocery e-commerce absolutely gained a lot over the last two years. But, you know, prior to the pandemic, grocery was also way behind many other retail sectors in in e-commerce penetration. So they, you know, there's a lot of uh, ground to uh, gain there. But, you know, as, as you look ahead over the next couple of years, what do you see happening uh, around e-commerce? Do you think just a continued gradual uh, climb or do you see it leveling off? Uh, where do you see things going? Yeah, well, again, separating all of retail from some of the specifics in general, I think there's more growth. We won't have the official numbers till next month uh, for e-commerce penetration from from the U.S. Department of Commerce. But my guess is we're going to finish 2021 at about 16 percent of all retail sales being e-commerce. And if I had to guess by the time I retire um, or hopefully way after I retire, because I'd love to retire soon, uh, (laughs) the, the, you know, e-commerce probably ever hits some some place around 25 percent. Like, I I don't think we're going to look across all retail one day and say, oh, my gosh. 50% 50% of it is is home delivery and and you know stores just aren't important. So so you know the difference between 16% and 25% in an industry that's a 7 billion dollar or 7 trillion dollar industry that's a that's a lot of room for more growth. But I think the bigger thing is just to stop talking about it uh, as a as separate sales because it 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 really doesn't matter. The over 60% of all the purchases in the United States are digitally influenced. You you use Google Maps to find out what the store hours were before you went to the store, or you read ratings and reviews on those bastards at Amazon, or you know you went to the Mondelez site to see if they have a gluten-free Oreo. Uh, you know you're using all these digital amenities, and then you make a purchase, right? And increasingly, like that purchase might that banana might come from a store, it might come from a regional distribution center, uh, it might come direct from a farm that the place where you collect the money is 
less and less relevant, you know, as, as you know, these, these all become integrated customer experiences. I know, I, you know, I hate throwing buzzwords out here, but you know, there's this new one, the, the Omni shopper, right. Where, you know, you're, you're just a shopper. You, you don't care about the channel through which you execute the actual purchase. You know, the point is to make information and execution channels available to the shopper, any, and which way, any, which way they choose to, transact with you. So the idea, I think a couple of years ago, people probably siloed, you know, mobile shopping versus e-commerce versus in-store. And I, I'm, and what we're seeing even in our data, Jason, is that people are, the omni shopper is actually more valuable than the online only shopper, right? People who shop both in-store and online are way more valuable because there's a more direct connection with the store. There's a more emotional connection. And I find that people who are purely online shoppers have lesser loyalty. It's much easier to switch between brands because it's a click of a button. Is that something that you see, you think uh, you see overall as a trend across the board? Oh, uh, for sure. So uh, which channel are you going to go shopping in today? Said no consumer ever, right? Like, like consumers certainly don't think in terms of channel. That's entirely, uh, uh, you know, uh, us thinking about our org structure and our PL structure and, and trying, you know, artificially imposing that on customers. So I, I totally agree with that. I certainly see across all our customers the, the higher lifetime value of, of those customers that use more of our amenities and more of our touch points. I like to caution customers because clients, the problem is clients see that stat and then they come to me and they go, so help me get more omni-channel shop. And I'm like, yeah, here's a fun fact. Uh, correlation is not causation, <laughs> right? Like, uh, are, like, are they our most valuable shoppers because they use two of our touch points? Or uh, is it, do they use two of our touch points because they're our most valuable shoppers, right? So like, if I go abduct a bunch of in-store shoppers and force them to order a banana from a website, are they likely to become more valuable because I forced them to do that? Like, no, it just turns out the customers that trust me the most, that have the best relationship with me, the get the most utility for me tend to want to use me more often. Right. And so like the way to win is not to artificially impose the, these, uh, you know, customer behaviors, it's to, you know, meet customer needs and make, make her life easier. And increasingly the only way to do that is be all the places where she needs help. And that's, you know, on her social networks and on her phone at home at the dinner table, you know, and, and in her car on the way home from soccer practice. And, you know, sometimes it's an amazing, rich, you know, experiential shopping experience in a great grocery store. It's, it's more about being omnipresent as a retailer than it is about creating an omni shopper. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, terrific. So, so, and, and this is another topic that we've kind of uh, talked about on this podcast and grocery being a low margin business. It's a high volume, low margin business. I know a lot of retailers struggle with, you know, with this e-commerce growth and profitability, right? Because there's just so much more added operational costs to fulfill, you know, where you had free labor where the customer would walk into the store and pick their own product. Now you have to hire somebody to do it. How do you think, how do you see that being solved in the long run? Yeah, well, it's a great question. I, again, like during the pandemic, we all just fought really hard to meet the customer's needs and we didn't worry so much about the, the uh, unit economics and the profitability. Now we're all panicking about it, right? Because per your point, like selling a banana was a super low margin business before. Now that the customer, you know, wants us to provide the labor to pick the banana and us to provide the labor to deliver the banana, it's a total loser. So 
the kind of practical answer is like I see a lot of retailers tackling both parts of that cost structure. So, you know, part one, uh, if I can get a robot to pick the banana instead of a, a sales clerk, that's cheaper. So a micro fulfillment center, you know, potentially can cost 10% of the cost of a human being to pick an order. There's a lot of extra headaches and complexity and unknowns with micro fulfillment centers. So I'm not prepared to say that they're a win, but let me just say every big grocer in the United States of America has a pretty robust pilot right now to learn if they can reduce their picking costs or at least make their picking more efficient using technology. So let's give those in-store pickers pick to light systems and audio systems and and uh, you know more intelligent pathing and things like that to reduce picking costs. And then in the U.S., and this is not true for every grocery market in the world, and the you know, U.S. has a lot of micro markets, but the, the answer to the delivery problem is to get the customer to come get the groceries, right? It's curbside pickup in most cases. So even before the pandemic, Walmart and Kroger you know, had both said that curbside pickup was the highest NPS shopping experience that they had ever tested. And uh, I worked for a big evil ad agency. We made a Super Bowl ad for Walmart promoting grocery curbside pickup that ran, you know, right before the pandemic uh, during the Super Bowl. So good grocers already knew that customers like that. And that, you know, that reduced a lot of the delivery costs. For most of the America, that's the economical way to do it. Like, are there some high density markets like Manhattan where you can do a route of grocery delivery and do it cost effectively? Sure. Are there some rich people that are willing to pay for gro the convenience of grocery delivery? Sure. But the, the high volume play for most of America, I think, is going to be curbside pickup. So the you hope you get the cost down from automated picking. You get the cost down by uh, driving customers curbside pickup. And then you you use this new shopping mode to change customer behaviors to get a more profitable order. So when we're talking to that customer digitally, can we help her do a better job of topping off her order and adding more high margin items to the cart? At the moment, we're losing on that. We The online orders aren't getting all the impulse items that we used to get in the grocery store. But is there hope in the long run that we do an even better job. There's a lot of guilty things. Uh, my favorite funny digital sh grocery stat is uh, a lot of my customers, their best-selling ice cream SKUs in the store are a pint configuration, but the best-selling ice cream SKUs for curbside pickup are a gallon. And, you know, the hypothesis is, you know, that you didn't want your neighbors to see you pushing around the giant tub of ice cream in the <laughs> in the grocery store. But when it's anonymously put into your trunk, you're you're willing to buy a more indulgent, decadent size. Right. <laughs> so, you, you know, just sort of picking up on what you just said, I, I see a lot of retailers continuing to grapple with providing a really good shopping experience or user experience, right? Especially across channels, across devices, et cetera. And, you know, in my mind, yes, they've got to focus on the profitability, the efficiency of fulfillment, all that good stuff. At the same time, they also need to be paid to pay attention to the other side of the equation. Uh, what are your thoughts? What are you seeing around that? Oh, 100%. So we're, at best, we're in the very first inning of a nine-inning baseball game when it comes to inventing a digital grocery experience. Uh, the very best experiences in America are awful. You know, if you go to the UK or South Korea or China, where they where they've been doing it more often for longer, it's better, but it still has a lot of room for improvement. So I'm I'm highly confident that we're going to continue to evolve. I I tend to work with the 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 really big established grocers more than the independents, and so I, I actually I'm I'm curious to 
I have some questions for you because I have some hypothesis about some of the differences. But um, the uh, one of my clients hates me because I constantly used to show this slide of their product detail page for Kale, right? And it was a, a three-word description, like, you know, uh, organic Italian Kale. And then right below that was a 256-word disclaimer saying that the description might be wrong. <laughs> and that was all the information that they gave you about the kale, right? And then you, I went to a digitally native grocer, uh, Fresh Direct in New York, right? That's been doing it longer and better. Mm. And they have three pages of content about the kale, right? Like they had a guy come in at 3 a.m. and taste that day's kale and write a review for that day's kale. They talked about its origin, its storage, how you'd use it in recipes, what the difference is between domestic and Italian kale. They, you know, they, they, they gave you all this rich content and again, I'm not, you know, holding Fresh Direct out as the the end all be all answer, but their product detail page was so far ahead of my big national grocer that it, it was sort of laughable, right? And so I do think now now that it's there's per your point, Gary, when when digital grocery was two or three percent in the uh, of sales in the U.S., nobody cared, right? And my big yep. clients were like, let's get the intern to launch a grocery site just so we can say we're doing it, but won't be profitable. We won't encourage anyone to do it and no one will care. Now that it's 10 or 12% of their sales, they've got their best people on it. They're really worried about the profitability and they're, they're all trying to figure it out. Yep. No, completely agree. And one of the things that I think the grocery industry has struggled with is standardization of, of data, right. And formats. And there's, there's absolutely no standard whatsoever in terms of how they store data. And, you know, and I think uh, a lot of people want to get into e-commerce and the expectation from the consumer, like you said, you know, the product description page just doesn't have data. And I think a lot of people, there are platforms that, that can enable e-commerce, but then the experience is driven by the data. And I'm sure you're seeing this as, across the board. Do you think there's like a, a point where we come to and say, hey, we, we need some body here that will kind of standardize this stuff to make this more scalable? Or is it a problem that each retailer has to solve for themselves? Yeah, so I have a feeling it'll be a blend of both. I don't, uh, I, like it absolutely is a problem. And they're like, so many examples of how grocery is so much more tricky than other parts of retail that if you don't come from the grocery industry and you kind of think of, you know, e-commerce and groceries being the same as e-commerce for sweatshirts, you know, it's 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 wildly different, right? Because if I'm if I'm Macy's and I want to sell a sweatshirt, like I get all the product attributes from Ralph Lauren. Like they they send me like all of these files. The the attributes on that banana are coming from a local producer often, right? Or bananas is maybe right. a bad example because we don't we don't grow a lot of bananas here, but tomatoes, right? And right. and it's it's you know, it's a regional distribution thing. It's a it's a farmer that's not providing a lot of content. So so like I see sort of two twofold thing like I, I'm not sure you're going to see industry wide standardization imposed upon every produce producer in the United States of America. I think the pressure on those producers is going to come from their vendors, the retailers. Right. So the big retailers that have leverage are going to say, look, from now on, this is all the content we need from you. And, and those big retailers are like giving those small farmers tools to provide those content. So it's like literally like, 
here's a phone to take a picture of the produce and here's the you know software to fill it out and make it easy. And, and each one of those grocers will try to kind of collect their own data. On a lot of the shelf-stable items, we are starting to see some standardization. So the uh, a big standards body in the world is called the uh, the GS1 standard, and they, they now have some 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 what I think are very sensible recommendations for how to present like CPG type content in grocery stores. And we're starting to see more, more big grocers adopt those, those standards. Yeah. I, I think uh, Shaker, you know, I, I think there's another side or dimension to the, the whole data problem that sort of manifests itself in simply the variety of assortment and, and SKUs you know, part of the reason e-com is so complex in grocery is, you know, typical supermarkets carrying 30,000, 40,000 or more SKUs of product. And, you know, as we all know, it's a really dynamic, high-velocity environment, you know, with, with out-of-stocks and, and other things that create all sorts of headaches and inefficiencies, you know, further down the chain, right, when it comes to fulfillment. I almost wonder if there isn't an opportunity for some of the bigger retailers to almost create a, a digital-only banner with a more constrained product assortment that can be maintained and, and uh, you know, provide higher service levels to the shopper and so on rather than trying to fulfill from every single store and represent every single store's product assortment because you know even across a, a big chain there are differences store to store in what's on the shelf that that really is like one of the unanswered questions at the moment right so pre-pandemic one of the markets that had the highest digital grocery penetration was the uk and um you know so the big grocer in the uk is tesco but a digitally native grocer actually got bigger than tesco online called Acado, right um and the UK is a small island. It's pretty dense. Everyone lives close together. And so Okado would build, like kind of did exactly what you you described, Gary. They didn't have stores. They did like very large central distribution systems with a lot of automation. And they, they won the the UK market. They sold more produce than, than Tesco online. But two funny things happened. Number one, they figured out that even if you're the most successful, there's not a lot of money to be made because the margins are so low. And they found a much better margin business. Let's sell all this software and technology we invented to all the other grocers in the world. So so they've come you know, to every market. In the US, Kroger has, has an exclusive license. And so you see Kroger trying to execute that Orcado model, which is a a huge distribution center is called the Shed. It costs like $14 million to open. The, the first couple of those are about to open. And, you know, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, efficiencies and all these things, that's going to be the model that wins. A lot of other grocers are like, that's crazy because that Shed is 30 miles from my customer and my store is five miles from my customer. And my customer 30 miles away has different preferences than, for, for assortment than my customer five miles away and all these other things. Now, I don't know who's going to win. At the moment, there are a lot more retailers investing a lot more in store distribution than central distribution. That could be because they've done the math and they think it just wins. And they, they certainly have some like reasonably articulate arguments. But it also could be because it defends all the investments they already have, right? Like if you have a bunch of stores, of course, you want right. to say stores are the answers. It's kind of, you know, if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I will point out Orcado is hedging their, or uh, Kroger's hedging their bets. They do both, right? Like, yes. so. 
Yeah, I, every time I go into the uh, local uh, Kroger store, uh, King Supers here, you know, especially on a weekend, uh, you have to fight your way through the aisles because, you know, the online order pickers are, you know, got their six foot or eight foot long carts blocking the aisle, you know, picking orders. Yeah, you're throwing elbows with a lot of Instacart pickers. Yeah, it's annoying. Yes. Yeah, and Customers love that. Right on top of the Kroger people. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is. It's a fascinating time because, you know, I think people are stuck between trying to figure out is this is this pandemic created a shift and everybody's trying to guess what's going to happen next year and trying to figure out where to invest their money. Do they invest it in a better in-store experience or drive greater, you know, you know, bopis type of experiences, right? And so in your uh, position from uh, at Publicis and, and your vantage point, what do you what do you tell what do you tell retailers that hey where should you if if I had uh, you know hundred dollars to put in where should I really be putting it investing in it? Yeah, well, I, like the answer at this point is is portfolio management, scenario planning, right? It's I would not put all my eggs in any one basket because it you know my clients that are much closer to it to me than me like you know uh, can't foresee how it's going to play out. I certainly can't foresee how it's going to play out. And anyone that comes in and says, it's going to play out this way, you should put all your chips on, on black. That that's a really risky scenario. Like the, you know, the, the playbook isn't clear. And so what you want to do is be thinking about if this happens, what are the core infrastructure elements I'm going to need? If this happens, what are the core infrastructure elements? And in some cases, you're going to find that there's overlapping infrastructure to support two different customer modes. And then that is safer to invest in, right? And I, I hate this, but I often um, uh, have to use advice from, from the bastards in Amazon because they are pretty smart. Uh, Jeff Bezos has this, this model for decision-making. He calls it one-way doors and two-way doors. If I can make an investment in something and find out quickly that it's not a good investment and and uh, re retarget that investment then there's not a lot of risk right so it's kind of like if you walk through a door and you know you can walk back through that door at any time you know then you should try walking through a lot of doors cuz there's not a lot of risk if it's a one way door meaning once you walk through it you're never allowed back through it you need to be a lot more conservative about when you walk through that door right and so for for retailers i really advise them to sort of understand what they're their two-way door investments are versus their one-way door investments are, and you know, don't don't assume we know the the end state at the moment. Unfortunately, it's a you know, uh, there's more uncertainty in the market than there ever has been in my 30 years for sure. Right. So I think, however, I think one thing is unquestionable, right? Which is, I think the retailers have to invest and keep investing in improved cus digital customer experiences because. That is not going anywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, and a pet peeve, but and again, when I was at Blockbuster, the internet happened, right? And they're like, like, who owns a home computer? Oh, Jason does, right? Like, uh, like, hey, Jason, you're in charge of digital, right? Like, because nobody cared about it, right? Like, who was, what was it going to matter? When people started trying to buy groceries online, what did every grocer in America do? Uh, let's call Instacart, right? Like, let's outsource it. Like, it's easy, it's simple, and. That that's a totally smart play to get get out there fast and get your first learning. When the pandemic hit and you had no way to sell online, yeah, of course that's a fast way to do it. But in the long run, if digital is a permanent part of the shopping experience, if it's the front door of your store, if it's your flagship experience, 
do you really want to be outsourcing that experience to uh, to someone else? Like it's it's an asinine decision, quite frankly, right? And so yeah. in in my world, all these big retailers used to use Instacart, and it was not stupid for them to do it. But once they realize this is a real thing, they all right. have or are in the process of firing Instacart. And so what has Instacart done? They're going down market, trying to get all those those small retailers that are less, you know, have less capex to invest in building it themselves. And I have great empathy for the smaller grocers because that seems appealing, and it's it's really expensive to build all this yourself and really hard. It's easy to outsource it, but I worry in the long run that man, you are you are you know putting the fox in charge of the hen house, and it, you know you know there likely are going to be some repercussions to that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think any retailer, I don't care if it's a one store retailer or you know Kroger or Walmart, that turns over that digital engagement of the you know shoppers to a third party like in Instacart or Shipt or whoever that they're really giving away or abdicating their future. You know it's it's that yeah, simple. It's not a service, right? It's also customer insights. You're you're also giving that away because you're not learning about your customers. You're doing business, but you're doing it at the cost of losing a lot of information about what your shoppers are doing. Yeah. Wow, uh, Jason, it looks like uh, you know the speed at which you talk has also got something to do with relativity because time seems to move faster. <laughs> uh, the volume of my talking, I know, is very high. I don't know about the quality. <laughs> well, I've been engrossed and completely lost track of time here. But you know, it's been a fascinating conversation. By the way, I, I did want to let you know that you know, we have this little coffee mug here. And if you give your address to Stephanie, she will mail one to you. And so we make sure we, we get you back on. And given that you've done, I don't know, are you, are you guys on your 280th, 90th episode? What is that? Somewhere there? Yeah, two, right? 286. Yeah, this week. Yeah. Yeah. We're, wow, we're going to be off of probation here pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, Someday you'll know how to do this. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're yeah. just we'll get one right eventually. Yeah, eventually. All right, I, we're still. I think we're still trying, Gary. I think eventually, <laughs> I think this is like episode sixty or sixty-one. I don't know. So we're, we're just getting started here. But we've been having. No, fun. you guys are doing but, great. You, you're doing it from this fancy sound studio. I see in the background for both of you. Like, uh, yeah, it took a lot to set this up, and especially to make sure that Gary's and mine is identical. That was really tough. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. The, so, even uh, the exact same camera angle. It's amazing. <laughs> we 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 work hard at that, Jason. <laughs> yeah. Well, the audience appreciates it. We really do. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. but but it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, and you know, just a ton of stuff to uh, you know. If you've been listening to this episode, I'm sure you'll go want to go back and listen because the stuff was loaded with a lot of insights. And uh, obviously, Jason has been steeped in this industry for many many years. So I'm sure you guys enjoyed it. Gary, any uh, any comments? No, this has been great. And Jason, yeah, I'd love to get you back on, you know, uh, somewhere down the road and catch up on the uh, latest happenings in retail. Yes. Uh, yes. Anytime, guys. It's uh, my favorite topic. 
Yeah, th thank you. Thank you again. And I wanted to also close out and thank Stephanie again for putting all this together. She's really our show producer, and this wouldn't happen without without her. Gary and I get on with our guests and have a great time for 45 minutes, and she's left with all the work to do to put this out. So thank you, Stephanie, and the rest of the crew who's, who's put this whole production together. And uh, we'll see you guys soon, and we'll have more fun guests. I think Jason definitely stood out as one of our most fun guests we've had in, in a long time. So Again, you know, all the other guests who were on, they were all fans. In fact, last week we had somebody on, Jason. Uh, it was a riot. So Harold Lloyd was on as a guest retail person. And again, much like you, grew up in a family with full retail, but more coming the independent route. And he was talking more about the basics of running retail. It was, it was, it's been a lot of fun. So if people enjoy it. They should uh, tune in. Gary and I are going to start a, a new podcast uh, talking all about orthopedic knee replacements. So it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> That's right. You can do it over in aisle three. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, listen, it's been a fantastic talking to you guys. And thanks again, Jason and Gary. And uh, we'll see you guys uh, next week. Make sure to join us every Monday and connect with us at The Retail Perch on Instagram and Facebook. And if you have any questions, feel free to email us at theretailperch at birdseye.com. Until next time, this is Shaker. And this is Gary, signing off.